0: Luke 16, starting in verse 19. I'm going to be reading out of the Passion Translation. The underdog, the underdog. Now, if you know me very well at all, you know that if you hear a song that happy and lighthearted, that I'm probably about to tell you something really hard. (laughs) And you're right, I am. Hopefully, the song softens you up a little bit and... You feel a little bit happy? Anybody catch themselves tapping their foot? Yeah, it's a pretty little catchy little song. The underdog, the underdog. Luke 16, starting in verse 19. This is a parable that Jesus told. Oh, it's up here? Let's use this. Of the rich man and Lazarus. And Jesus continued. He's in the middle of a teaching. Now, just to give some context on this chapter, really fascinating stuff. At the beginning of Luke 16... Jesus is actually giving another parable about the dishonest manager. And Jesus is drawing some examples in an intentional way to make some points and to even purposely kind of delineate between how he wants his followers to be versus how the Pharisees were behaving. If you've been in church any length of time at all, you know that the best thing to be is not a Pharisee. Amen. And Jesus had a lot of hard things to say to the Pharisees. And I love Jesus because a lot of times he would kind of say it to them through teaching his disciples. Now that's not to say that Jesus ever backed down from a question or a confrontation. He was actually an expert at handling confrontation and answering difficult questions. But there are purposefully times that you see Jesus teaching on things that he knows is going to kind of cut right to the point in regards to what the Pharisees are getting ready to question him on. Many times in the Scripture, read this phrase that perceiving their thoughts, Jesus spoke this way. Here he answered a question this way. And there's a, there's a line in that song that we just listened to. It's one of the last lines of the song. It says this, The thing that I will tell you now, it may not go over well. Man, I can tell you when I was preparing this message, I was really feeling that in my heart. I got some things to tell you that might not go over well. It says this, it might not be a photo op, the way that I spell it out, but you won't hear from the messenger. You don't want to know about something that you won't understand. You have no fear of the underdog, and that's why you won't survive. Man, in Luke 16, Jesus starts a conversation that he finishes in the last part of that chapter, which is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which we're going to get to here. And essentially what Jesus is saying is that there is a way to behave in this world. There's a a way to behave and we don't need to live life aimlessly and we don't need to live life casually, but we need to live life spirit-filled with God's wisdom and strategically, intentionally, on purpose. And he draws this example from the dishonest manager. And essentially what happens in Luke 16, 1 through 9, is that Jesus teaches his disciples using this story. So before we get to the rich man and Lazarus, I want to give you some context with the parable of the dishonest manager. said, so There was once a very rich man who hired a manager to run his business and oversee all of his wealth. But soon a rumor spread that the manager was wasting his master's money. So the master called him and said, Is it true that you're mismanaging my estate? Reading this out of the Passion translation you need to provide me with a complete audit of everything you oversee for me I've decided to dismiss you and the manager thought now what am I to do I'm finished here I can't hide what I've done and I'm too proud to beg to get my job back I have an idea that will secure my future it will win me favor and secure friends who can take care of me and help me after I get fired So the dishonest manager hatched his scheme. He went to everyone who owed his master money one by one, and he asked them, how much do you owe my master? And one debtor owed $20,000, so he said to him, let me see your bill. Pay me now, and we'll settle for 20% less. The clever manager scratched out the original amount owed and reduced it by 20%. And he said to another who owed $200,000, pay me now, and we'll reduce your bill by 50%. And the clever manager scratched out the original amount owed and reduced it by half. How many of you think this is a godly thing that the dishonest manager is doing? The parable gives it away. He's a dishonest manager. And the same way that I used a secular song in a spiritual place to draw forth what I hope will be a godly convicting point for you, Jesus is about to do the same thing in this very parable. He's taking this parable of a dishonest manager doing evil things, and he's about to point to the kingdom of God through it. It's awesome. It's awesome. He says this, Even though his master was defrauded, when he found out about the shrewd way his manager had feathered his own nest, he congratulated, listen, the clever scoundrel for what he'd done to lay up for his future needs. And Jesus continued, remember this, the sons of darkness are more shrewd than the sons of light in their interactions with others. He said that people that are constantly seeking evil, seeking a way to get out on top, are constantly strategic on the relationships they form, the pockets they line, the friendships they make, the allegiances that they have, and they're pursuing darkness. He said they're more shrewd than the sons of light. They're more shrewd than the people of God in their dealings with others. Listen to this, verse 9. It's important that you use the wealth of this world. You use the resources given to you. You use the things at your hand day in and day out to demonstrate your friendship with God by winning friends. And blessing others. Listen. Then. When this world falls apart. Let me tell you something very plainly. The world. Is falling apart. This present age. Is passing away. It's temporary. There's an age that's coming. There's an eternal age. And as the kingdom of God. We're supposed to be. Citizens of this kingdom, the kingdom of God, we're supposed to be living as prophetic witnesses in the here and now of the age that is coming. Let that sit for a second. We're supposed to be living from heaven toward earth with real impact and real influence. We're supposed to process things based upon the wisdom of God. Jesus says it's not right that the sons of darkness are more shrewd and more crafty in how they interact with people for their own personal gain and profit than the sons of light are in regards to blessing others and making connections, covenant relationships that will further the kingdom. Are you with me? When this world falls apart, and my friend, it will, your generosity will provide you with an eternal reward. Temporary and eternal. Which one lasts longer? Eternal. There's a temporary age and people that are locked into the temporary age, they're thinking, it's culture, it's systems, it's practices, and I can tell you this, if you're locked into the temporary age, filled with self-absorption, self-exaltation, strategically crafting and cunning and doing things so that you'll always come out on top. You're a part of an age that will not survive. How many of you want to be a part of the age that is coming and will be eternally? It's important that you use your resources, you use the things at your disposal, you use the wealth, you use the things that God has given you and that you've acquired through your favor by winning friends that matter and blessing others. Doing so through your generosity, you will provide yourself an eternal reward. This is the Pharisees' response in Luke 16, verse 14. Listen to this. Now, the Jewish religious leaders who were listening to Jesus were lovers of money. Now, that word money money there is actually a little bit different. If you get into Greek, it's the word mammon. And the word mammon is really, we could could kind of equate some things in our present-day culture along the lines of, like, materialism, consumption, status. Things that we crave and desire in order to appear important, in order to make sure that when all this falls apart, the things that need to land in my favor land in my favor. Kind of like that dishonest manager. They were lovers of money or mammon, it said this, and they laughed at what he said and they mocked his teachings. Now, let me tell you this these weren't lost folk. They were lost. They didn't know it. But these were the church folk of the day. These were the people that were spending much time in the temple, were students of the scripture, knew about the law of Moses, were so devout in their religious practices. But somewhere along the span of getting stuck in the rut of religion, getting stuck in the rut of of focusing on rules and not relationship, these church people ended up missing God in the flesh. It's a scary thought. Scary thought when you you think about it. Now, here's here's the reason why. We're going to see pictures of it in The Rich Man and Lazarus. Jesus is trying to drive a a point home. So at the last piece of this this chapter, he writes the following. Jesus continued. He said, there was once a very rich man. The very beginning of the chapter, he talks about a rich man, now another rich man, who had the finest things imaginable, living every day, enjoying his life of opulent luxury. Outside the gates of his mansion was a poor beggar named Lazarus. Everybody say Lazarus. He lay there every day covered with boils or sores. And all the neighborhood dogs would come and lick his open sores. And the only food he had to eat was the garbage that the rich man threw away. One day poor Lazarus died and the angels of God came and escorted his spirit into paradise. I don't have this up here, but these should be red letters. because This is Jesus talking. Everybody okay? He's using a story. He's using a parable. The day came that the rich man also died. And in hell he looked up from his torment and saw Abraham in the distance, the father of the faith. And Lazarus, the beggar, was standing beside him in the glory. So the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and come to cool my tongue, for I'm in agony in these flames of fire. Man. But Abraham responded, my friend, don't you remember? While you were alive, you had all, everybody say all, all you desired, surrounded in luxury, while Lazarus had nothing. Now Lazarus is in the comforts of paradise, and you are in agony. Besides, between us is a huge chasm, And we're going to stop here. That cannot be bridged, keeping anyone from crossing from one realm to the other, even if he wanted to. Even if he wanted to. Dishonest manager, Jesus makes a point in that parable. The dishonest manager was intentional about using what was at his disposal to build relationships with the right people so that he could come out on top. I can tell you that the parable of the dishonest manager showcases, showcases what this temporary age is all about. Self-exaltation, self-preservation, and being willing to step over anything or anyone to make sure that you succeed. Sound familiar? Jesus has this compare and contrast in a parable at the beginning and a parable at the end. And the parable at the end, he shows a rich man who had access to much wealth and had things at his disposal on a day-in and day-out basis, and he used his wealth, he used his favor to make sure that his life was padded and secured just the way that he wanted it to. And I can guarantee you that this rich man had influential people over to his house weekly. I guarantee you that the rich man could walk into a restaurant and snap out a table for himself, and it would be cleared. I guarantee you that he had his name on the register at the country club. Everybody following with me. I guarantee you that the rich man had everything that he could have possibly desired. But he didn't take a lesson from the dishonest manager. See, he used his wealth... To make sure that his circle was always filled. He used his house. He used his resources to make sure that his circle was always filled with people that would be pleasurable to him. He made sure that his table was always filled with people that would flatter him. He made sure that his life was built in such a way that he purposefully would never have to drive by the part of town where people are not so well off. He purposefully made sure that he had security at the gate to keep out the riffraff. It says, Lazarus sat right outside the gate. Can I be really honest with you? If you don't learn as a member of the kingdom of God to make it a priority, to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and step outside of your gate of comfort, you might end up with a chasm in your soul. They say, Pastor Zach, are you telling me that whether or not I'm saved, are you telling me whether or not I'm going to heaven is all determined by how I treat Lazarus? No. It's determined by how you treat the underdog. And notice I say the word the underdog. I didn't say underdogs in general. I said the underdog. See, there's a reason why the rich man couldn't recognize what he was supposed to be doing with Lazarus. How many of you know that God's will was for the rich man to receive Lazarus into his house? How many know that the, God's will for the rich man was to reach out and to ease the suffering of Lazarus? How many know that he missed the opportunity because of the way that he had purposefully built his life, the way that he had structured himself? The beginning of the song that we listen to says this, picture yourself in your living room, your pipe and your slippers laid out for you. Kind of sounds like the rich man, doesn't it? Everything in order, everything exactly comfortable the way that he wanted it to be. says this, I know you think that you're not too far. Too far from what? The good life. Too far from making sure that you've acquired all the stuff that the world says that you're supposed to acquire. But he says this, I hear a call of a lifetime ring. You know, outside the gates, usually the button to call the main house, isn't it? I believe that there might have been some times where Lazarus pushed the button to the big house. But the man with his pipe and slippers laid out for him, he said, I'm not too far from having my life just the way that I want it. Built picture, perfect. Uh, but I hear a call of a lifetime ring. See, I don't know if it's a call of a lifetime. I think it's that sorry Lazarus hanging outside my gate. I felt the need to get up for it, the song says. So, but I'm going to cut out the middleman. I got to cut out the middleman." See, because... The writer says, you've got no time for the messenger. Got no regard for the thing that you don't understand. See, the rich man passing Lazarus every day has got no time to understand Lazarus' condition. Because he doesn't live like Lazarus. Doesn't have anything to do with Lazarus. Can't understand how somebody would let themselves live in this kind of squalor. What happened to this lazy, no good, bum, Lazarus? That's outside of his gate. He could have grind like I've had to grind to get to where I am he could have climbed the ladder of success the way that I did shame on him for occupying the same geography as me shame on him for wasting my oxygen you ever talk to people like this shouldn't be true in the kingdom of God should it No, no. see we don't live as extreme as the rich man but a lot of us if we're honest we have some internal self talk when it comes to underdogs And see, the rich man said, i got no time for the messenger. I don't have any regard for the thing that I don't understand. I've got no fear of the underdog. That's why I will not survive. Hmm. Song goes on to say, I want to forget how conviction fits. How can I get out from under it? Is there a way I can get it out of me? Can I cut it out of me? This conviction I feel when I walk by Lazarus, this conviction that sometimes still rises whenever I hear the gate bell ring. Is there a way to get that out of me? Because that's the one thing really gnawing at me, keeping me from the good life. If I could just find a way to get past that conviction, if I could find a way to get rid of that last bit of compassion on the inside of me, then everything would fit the way that I want it to. Are you following me? He says, because you don't talk to the water boy. <laughs> I love that. There's so much you could learn from him, but you don't want to know. You won't ever back up an inch. The rich man passing through the gate never backed up an inch to stop and check on Lazarus. He just kept walking to his place of comfort, his place of convenience. So that's why you will not survive. And he says, the thing that I tell you now, where I started, it might not go over well. It might not be photo op the way that I spell it out. But you got no fear of the underdog. That's why you will not survive. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus is trying to do his best to scream some sense into the Pharisees, scream some sense into a group of people. They had become lovers of monetary gain, lovers of materialism. Were still checking all the religious boxes and attending the temple and participating in the rituals, but it had become old hat. Scriptures say that they honored God on their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. They were whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. They were playing the church game. Are you with me? See why I played you the happy song? They are playing the church game. I told you that they were so caught up in their religious idealism. They were so caught up in their monetary pursuit. They were so caught up in life that they missed the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus in front of them. See, Jesus is the king of the world. Jesus is the Messiah. But he didn't come the way that the religious elite of the day wanted him to come. Can I be honest with you? He came like an underdog. See, if you have no fear of the underdog, not just underdogs. How many of you understand and know that Jesus is trying to make a much bigger point than just caring for the poor with Lazarus? Caring for the poor, I'm going to show you, is core fabric of what it means to be the church. And caring for the underdog in totality. It's very close to the heart of God. But there's this thing that happens whenever we interpret Jesus the way that we want him to be, instead of seeing him for who he is. See, Jesus is the messianic king. How many of you believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish Messiah? But how many of you know that whenever Jesus came, he wasn't born in the big house. He was born in the manger. He wasn't laid in the golden cradle. He was laid In where the animals eat out of, on top of maybe some hay with some saliva on it. See, Jesus came like the underdog. Why does Jesus come like the underdog? It's an interesting question. See, Philippians says that he didn't take equality with God. How many of you know that Jesus' wealth has got nothing on the rich man in this parable? They're saying Jesus is the most wealthy being in the universe. You know, the place he's from, the streets are gold, the gates are pearls. The rich man had some wealth, but he don't have any kind of wealth compared to Jesus. But Jesus doesn't take equality with God. He doesn't take divinity. He doesn't take the opulence of heaven as something to keep himself separate from humanity. So he enters into the condition in the form of a servant, lowly. I love what Isaiah said. He said, you could have passed him on the street and there was nothing in his flesh, nothing in his physical appearance that you would ever stop to back up an inch. So you wouldn't give him a second look. He was ordinary. Our carpenter's son, the son of a man that didn't make the rabbinical school cut as a boy. He was the son of an ordinary laborer, common man, doing common work. In a town that nobody wanted to be from. Hanging out with people that didn't make the cut of the religious elite either. Fishermen. Hated people even. Tax collectors. IRS agents, church. Are you feeling me? And Jesus had this knack. We see a prophetic picture of this in the life of David. There's this awesome thing if you go and you read... First Samuel, and you see some of the story of David. David is a prophetic picture of Jesus. It's a type and a shadow of Christ. It actually says that through David's lineage is how Jesus got here. And there's things about David's life that point us to Scripture. By the way, that's actually what the entire Old Testament is doing, pointing us to Jesus. You know when you read the Old Testament and you cringe a little? You haven't read the Old Testament. You ever read the Old Testament and think, God, you're good, but what was going on there? Do you know that if you read the Old Testament, it's like reading up until chapter 6 of a 20-page book and saying that you've read the whole story. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets said, I came to fulfill them. How many of you know the climax of the story of the scripture is Jesus. The Old Testament's taking us to Jesus. David's life's point us to Jesus. And this funny thing between David and Jesus is that David, being hunted down by Saul, is in this cave. And it said that while he's in this place of distress, while he's in this place of torment, there were others. One translation says, down and outers. (laughs) That came to him. And you go on to read that these people that were underdogs ended up becoming some of the mightiest men and warriors in the entire world. See, unless you learn to have fear of the underdog, you won't survive. And you won't be able to spot Christ in underdogs, plural. God has a special place in his heart for underdogs, for Lazaruses. How do I know this? Because he kind of came to the earth as one how he chose to reveal himself Hebrews chapter 1 says long ago and many times in many ways the Lord spoken to us through the law and the prophets but in these last days he's chosen to speak through us to us through his son Jesus Christ Jesus was an underdog I got one amen and it was Pastor Lee I appreciate the amen. See, how many of you know that in the temporary age, Jesus was an underdog? But they didn't stop him from being king of the world. See, Jesus has this awesome thing that happens in Matthew chapter 5. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And the way I've always looked at the Sermon on the Mount is this it's kind of like Jesus' inaugural address. As king of the world. He says let me give you the platform of the politics of God. And he starts off in a very strange campaign speech. And it's very strange because he doesn't need to be elected. He already was. People weren't going to vote for him anyway. It kind of helps to be God. Amen. He says blessed. How many of you look at the rich man and say. The rich man is blessed. Love what pastor talked about on Sunday. With blessing your children. Broke it down that blessing doesn't equal stuff. Some of the richest people in the world are not blessed. But the world would look. The world would look at the rich man and say, this man is blessed. Hashtag blessed. Hands pressed together, emoji. Hashtag blessed. He's got everything he wants. it has got everything he needs. But see, God has this interesting way of assessing blessedness. And I'm going to show you out of Matthew 25 that the way he does it is actually based upon how you treat the least of these. Not how well known you are or how much stuff you have. See, Jesus kind of reorders the way that society is going to be in the kingdom of God on the Sermon on the Mount. And he says some interesting things regarding blessedness. He doesn't say, Blessed is the man who can lift his finger and a servant will bring him whatever he wants. He says things like, Blessed are the poor. He says things like, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You could say, blessed are the underdogs. You ever want to know where God is the closest? Find an underdog. I love what the Lord writes to us here. In Ezekiel sixteen forty nine, he says this, the prophet's speaking to the Israelites in regards to their fallen sister, Sodom. You know Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It was a bad story. I think it's interesting what God says through the prophet. He says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister, Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. It's out of the ESV Bible. But did not aid the poor and the needy. See, in God's kingdom realm, if you don't have a fear of the underdog and you don't learn how to start caring for underdogs, there's a chance you may not survive. Say, man, well, this sounds a lot like a works message. I tell you this, you don't get saved by your works, but you are saved for works. Faith without works is dead. Brother James said that. He says, you say I have faith, I have works. He said, I will show you my faith by my works. And I hate to tell you this, but here's cutting to the chase. There's going to be a day where we all stand before Jesus, and he's really only going to tell us one of two things. Well done, or what have you done? God has something to say about the underdog. James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that's pure and undefiled. See, the Pharisees had a form of religion. They had church going. They had tithing. They had subscription to the emails that would tell them what was happening at the temple. Man, sometimes I really wish I could preach you something besides the Bible, but I just can't do it. You ever been there? Man, my flesh, Pastor Lee, you ever been there? You really just want to tell people, Something besides what God says. gets tough, man, because it's like, man, this is hard. And you know, if I'm talking to you about this, who do you think God's been talking to about it first? Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit. That in the Greek means to look upon in order to care for. Orphans and widows in their affliction, in the middle of their mess. I didn't talk to Serena about what I was preaching tonight. She just prophesied my message during the announcements. Don't you love prophetic people? Steal your thunder every time. And to keep oneself, listen, unstained from the world, from the temporary age, from all the hoarding and heaping and hurry. And to pay attention to a life that looks more like serving, sharing, and being still to hear the call of a lifetime. What you're feeling right now is called conviction. Read it in the song. I want to figure out how conviction Fits, how it works. Maybe I can get it out of me. Let me tell you this. A holy and righteous people, we should crave conviction. God, what's the call of the lifetime that you have for me? Jesus spilled blood on the cross. Not just so that you could have access to a eternal life insurance policy. But he spilled blood on the cross to equip you. To live the manner of life that he lived. It's no longer you that live, but Christ that lives in you. And I have this funny thing that happens when I look at my life and I look at Christ's and I see this big gap between how I say I believe and how I behave. Anybody else seen the gap before? The gap is called conviction. What you do with it determines whether or not you survive. (laughs) Are you following me? I love what Paul says. He says, everybody's works will be tested, but they'll be tested as by fire. What gets you saved? What gives you eternal life insurance? See, you've got to be careful in the culture because we live in such a consumptive culture. We live in such a culture of materialism that we can start thinking about salvation the same way. But I can tell you this way. What gets you saved, what gets you the eternal life insurance, is simple. I see it in the thief on the cross next to Jesus. He didn't have a lifetime of good works. All he had was a moment of recognizing the underdog, hanging next to him and saying, I believe in you. I want to be where you are. But if you think that once you make that decision and then you say, I'm going to shirk my responsibility in following in Jesus' footsteps, if you think that the Lord isn't going to have an honest conversation with you one day, you're mistaken. All of our works will be tested as through Fire. And some of us are going to come out smelling like burnt toast. We'll get in, but it's going to hurt a little bit. Are you following me? There's a missionary team, circa 1800s. There's this one missionary team in Europe that it's recorded they were sending out a boat on this expedition to go and take the gospel to where they knew it had never been taken before, and upon leaving the port, one of the missionaries cried off, cried from the balcony of the ship back to his loved ones that were on the shore knowing that where he was going, that death was a real possibility, not returning was likely. He cried this off the ship. He said, may my life be a just reward for his suffering. When you realize that you weren't just saved from something, you were saved for something. When you realize that you weren't just purchased to not experience hell, but you were also purchased to release heaven on this earth. That'll change the way you live your Christianity. See, my job, the scripture says, is that I'm a shepherd watching over your souls. Be irresponsible for me to not help you be prepared for the day you stand before him. I would be irresponsible in my duty as a shepherd in this house to not have hard conversations to make sure that whenever you stand before him, you can stand before him empty. Everything you gave me to do, I did. Every word that you gave me, I released. I wanted my life to be a just reward for your suffering. I wanted to carry your name well in the earth. See, complacency is always birthed from an entitlement mentality. And sometimes Christians get in this materialistic, consumeristic perspective in regard to their salvation, and they say, I'm going to heaven, so what does the rest of it matter? It matters because we're all going to stand before him. It matters because the Lord's deposited things in your life. He's given you resources. And let me tell you this. Bigger than all of that, God actually desires a life that he knows if you would live it, you would enjoy it. The rich man having everything at his disposal was not living life to his fullest. Why does God say Pay attention to the underdog. Why does God say, look for me in the least of these? Why does God say, live a life of denying yourself, taking up your cross? Because he actually wants you to live. People come to me all the time. Pastor, how do I have a better life? Let me tell you, I'll save you the conference price and you don't even have to buy the book. Listen to me. Do you want to have a better life? Devote yourself every day to making somebody else's life better and you will have a better life. Pastor, I want to have impact and influence. I want to be great. How low can you go? How many Lazaruses can you touch in a day? I want to have significance. I want to be validated, whatever that means. So we think once I have this figure amount in the bank account, I'll be validated. Once I have that house, I'll be valid. My parents will be proud. Some of you, bless your daughter in hearts, your parents have been dead for 30 years. Are you following me? What about making God proud? What about understanding I was bought with a price? What about understanding my life doesn't belong to me? What about understanding that whenever I made a decision to receive his life into mine, it didn't come with me earning or deserving it. But you better believe that it came by his amazing grace. But I love what Dallas Willard says. It says grace is not opposed to effort. It's just opposed to earning or deserving something. None of us earn to deserve the everlasting grace of God. You got it freely and the requirement on your life now is that you would freely give it. Don't miss the call of a lifetime. Make sure that there's not Lazaruses in your life that are being left out. Who's the most left out figure in all society? The underdog. It's always the people that everybody least expects. And see, the enemy knows this too. See, the scripture tells us that the enemy prowls about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. You ever watch National Geographic? You ever watch Animal Planet? You ever seen it in person maybe, the way that a lion stalks its prey? A lion will never jump off full bore into the middle, right dead center of a herd of water buffalo or wildebeest. It always waits for the one that's a little bit strayed from the pack it always waits for the one that's a little bit weaker a little bit more sickly the lion wants a quick kill I got news for you God's eye and the devil's eye is on the same thing underdogs that's why he came in person and tempted Jesus because see God's kingdom is upside down the people you think matter the least actually matter to God the most See, Jesus reordered society on the Sermon on the Mount. He told us the way that in the kingdom of God, blessedness was going to be established. And he said this, Many that are first will be, and the last will be, First. first. Why do you think it's the underdogs in schools all across America, bullied, Overlooked. Every day living a a living hell when they go to school. They end up being the ones that decide to bring a gun one day and get payback. It's because the devil has his eyes on underdogs too. Because see, the underdog is in the most crucial point in time. The underdog has absorbed enough pain of this life to make a decision. To live a life devoted to ensuring that other people get free of pain. Or to make a decision to inflict their pain on everyone else. God has his eyes on underdogs. You should too. Let's go to Matthew 25. We'll end on a really happy piece of scripture here. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. Now, how many of you know that nations, there's no nations without peoples? Right? Okay. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Hmm. We're tracking with you, Jesus. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Hmm. Pretty good so far. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Yeah, you had your hands lifted high and screaming at the top of your voice that I'm a good, good father, but you never showed it to Lazarus. Whatever you did to the least, whatever, who's the least? I can tell you the least is the people you think about the least and the people you purposefully try to think about the least. Jesus has this funny way of taking up identity with the least of these. Why? It's because he was an underdog. Then he'll say to the ones on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Whoa, Jesus, what's happening here? For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. You know, as a Christian, I don't confess that I understand a whole lot. But I confess that I believe everything that God says. And if we're serious about following Jesus, we have to be serious about the people in our lives that God's leading us to, but we choose to leave out. We have to be serious. Because I think that sometimes we're not willing to walk past the gate of our comfort and we end up with a great chasm in our soul. I think sometimes there's people right on the fringes of our life that God's calling us to that our inconveniences, our comforts, our own wants have erected lavish walls and lavish halls that we'd rather hide behind instead of being Jesus to the least of these. I don't have any resolution. I don't have any place to really drive a point home in regards to what all Christ is meaning in those passages. But I do know it all starts by recognizing the underdog, Jesus. And I love what John, the beloved disciple said. He said, you can't say you love God who you don't see and not love people that you do see. And I believe personally that one of the first questions that Christ will ask you on the day that you stand before him, I can't prove this 100% this is just a personal conviction of mine I believe one of the primary questions that you'll be asked is this did you learn how to love did you learn how to love there's a man of God named Bobby Connors he had this vision one time So the vision was that the Lord appeared to him and he told him Bobby he said do you recognize me? He said, yes, Lord, I recognize you. He said, and before his eyes in this vision that he kind of did a little wiggle and all of a sudden Jesus turned around and he looked back at him as this very elderly bent over woman. But it was still the same voice and still the same eyes. And he said, Bobby, do you recognize me now? He did a little wiggle and he turned around and when he stood back, he was a six foot tall, muscular, built athlete. And he looked at him, same Jesus' eyes, same Jesus' voice. He said, Bobby, do you recognize me now? He said, yes, Lord. He said, Bobby, you're good at recognizing me this way. And he turned back to his original image. He says, but I want you to get really good at recognizing me and the people that I bring across your path day in and day out. If we're going to survive, if we're going to, be a part of this age to come, we've got to do a couple things. First thing is we've got to have some fear of the underdog, Jesus Christ, call upon him as Lord and Savior. And we need to wrestle with what it actually means to follow. We've got to wrestle with what it actually means to emulate his life into our life. We've got to pay attention to what God cares about. Here's the thing. Pure religion undefiled is this. To care for the widow and the orphan in their affliction, leave yourself unstained by the world. I got news for you. There's people that live in mansions that are orphans in their spirit. There's people that got all the company in the world, but they're just lonely on the inside. How serious does God take people being left out? So serious. He went to the cross to make sure that you wouldn't be. How serious do we take people being left out? Well, if we're going to follow Jesus, I think we all can admit that we need the Holy Spirit to help us grow in regards to taking it a little bit more seriously. My desire is for us to be a church not just in a city, but for a city. Who's right outside the gate? Who's the person that's occupying your mind the least that God desires for you to show up in their life the most? I love what Jesus said. He says, when you throw a party, I love it. He says, we don't read the Bible because we don't want to wrestle with it. We just want to feel very secure in how right we are and how good we have it. That's what we like because it's safe there. Jesus said, when you throw a party, listen to this. He said, when you throw a party, don't invite your friends. He says, don't invite people that will return the favor. He says, be intentional to invite the people. They'll never be able to pay you back. Be intentional to bring in the poor, the needy, the lame, the broken, the ostracized, the outcast. Why? Because God cares about underdogs. How many of you are glad he cared about you? How many of you are glad that he leaves the 99 to go after the one? Victory life is not a cruise ship. It's a battleship. And we believe that we've got a mission. The mission is building healthy churches that are growing people in Christ. I say, in order to grow in Christ, we have to start paying attention to who Christ tells us to pay attention to. Maybe this week you don't invite the people you typically invite to lunch. Maybe you invite the one in the office that Everybody talks about in the break room and makes fun of. Maybe you don't miss the call of a lifetime. Maybe you make a decision to let somebody else know that for that week they were important instead of clamoring to hear how important you are. Maybe it's being intentional on who's a part of your life group this semester. Maybe it's intentional about stopping for a moment past just a handshake at church with somebody that you haven't talked to before. He say, man, I'd love to hear your story. I love what Hebrew says. It says, I've got to show hospitality. He said, and in doing so, there's sometimes we entertain angels unawares. I'll take it a step further. I think sometimes we're entertaining Jesus unawares. Who are you leaving out? Where's the call of the lifetime for you? Who's right past your gate of comfort? Let's back up an inch. Let's pay attention to what the Holy Spirit's speaking and doing. Let's live with a healthy fear of the underdog And keep an eye out for underdogs. And if we do that, I got good news. Not only will we survive, we'll thrive. And we'll be a church that thrives. Man, if you know tonight you say, God, I need you to grow me in this area. Why don't you put your hand on your heart? My hand's on my heart with you. I never preach anything that God hasn't been working on me about. That'd be hypocritical, wouldn't it? I'm a lot of things, but I'm not that. God's dealing with me. He's dealing with us. Father, grow us in what it means not just to have our eternal life insurance package squared away, but grow us in what it means to be a people that live salvation every day that live with a focus and a determination, that are taking an example from the dishonest manager and to live shrewdly using the influence and favor and wealth and blessings that you've given us, not to structure padded lives for ourselves, but to make the lives of others better. Help us to live open-handed, not closed-fisted. Help us to be people that Don't try to cut out conviction because it doesn't feel good. But God, where you convict us, let us call upon the great comforter who is the Holy Spirit. Say, Spirit of living God, empower me by your grace. To be a person that lives a life worthy of the Lamb's suffering. All for you, Jesus. Now and always, your will is for us to be blessed so that we can be a blessing. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. 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 I'm going to let you guys go. Not going to have the ministry teams come tonight. If you weren't ministered to, there's no hope. Just kidding. <laughs> Love you. See you soon. Bye bye.